The CNBC app, global market news in one place. Customizable sections and personalized alerts. Stocks tracking, interactive charts and market insights all in your hands. Stay connected, stay informed. Download the CNBC app today. A very warm welcome, everybody. This is Squawk Box in your headlines this hour. Credit Suisse reports a pre-tax income of 2.8 billion Swiss francs and says it plans to increase its dividend by 5% per year. We're going to speak to the CEO, Thomas Godstein. That's later on in the programme. Meanwhile, Standard Chartered pre-tax profit drops 25% in the first half with the lender bracing for a new wave of COVID challenges. CFO Andy Holford is waiting in the wings. We will get to him shortly. No respite for Airbus. Revenues plunge 55% in the second quarter as the French aerospace giant reveals a 1.6 billion euro earnings loss for the year so far. And Total unveils an $8 billion write-down as the French oil major takes a hit on its Canadian assets and cuts its near-term outlook for crude prices. So very good morning, everybody. Uh, bear with us. It's going to be an exciting ride today. We've got a lot of corporate earnings to get through and a lot in the financial sector to talk about. So let's kick you off this morning with a focus down on the second quarter Credit Swiss numbers. And Thomas uh, Gostein coming into the business in February, as you know, with the departure of Tijan Tiam. And what we've got is earnings, plus we've got some announcements around restructuring of the business. So let's just talk about the uh, revenue or the profit lines here. The revenue line they've delivered this morning, about 6.2 billion Swiss francs. So the revenue line up 11%. That looks a little better than the consensus expectation of uh, about 5.6 billion. Uh, In terms of um, the um, group delivering on ROTE for the second quarter 2020, uh, up a 11%, 11%, CET1 ratio of 12.5% for the quarters against the 12.1% delivered for the previous quarter. The um, group giving us a net new asset number here at 9.8 billion uh, for the quarter is against 5.8 billion for the first quarter of 2020. As I look across for some news on the uh, impairment side. Um, Let's just check this off. The market in terms of provisioning for credit losses was looking at about 436 million. Uh, To reflect the challenging economic environment, the group says we recorded uh, additional 296 million provision for credit losses uh, in the second quarter of Q2 compared to 568 million for the first quarter. So that would suggest a moderation in the anticipation of credit impairment going forward and would indeed be quite encouraging for those who are hoping that we might actually have seen the peak of the worst of the impact on businesses. Let me just talk a little bit about the um, uh, changes that we're seeing in terms of key initiatives uh, for the business here. Just let me note in passing the pre-tax income of 2.8 billion for the first half. So the group are making some structural changes here. The creation of a global investment bank to build a client-centric global platform. And so it goes on here. But 
This, uh, in a sense, reverses some of the work that we saw Tijan Tiam doing as he uh, broke out various units on the investment uh, banking and the market side. The um, business, it seems to me, is, is refocusing down on providing a single core offering around investment banking and, and, and markets business. The um, group says uh, we are also combining the chief risk and compliance fu- officer function to create alignment across control functions. And I think that is also uh, fairly important when you look at the recent history for this business, because there have been some questions asked about their involvement in uh, Wirecard and Luckin Coffee, and just a question being asked as to whether they need to just tighten up the compliance aspect of the business that they're doing and take a harder look at some of the companies they engage with. So that clearly is something that I think the markets will be comforted about this morning. Um, Let me not steal the thunder of uh, the CEO, though, Thomas Gottstein. That interview will be coming up at 8 o'clock Central European time this morning. So we'll learn a little bit more about the outlook from here and, of course, um, what they intend to do with regard to uh, further potential risks from COVID-19 and preparations that they intend to make at this stage. Chartered has reported a 25% fall in pre-tax profit over the first half after credit impairments rose to $1.6 billion. The lender also warning it expects, quote, new waves of coronavirus-related challenges in the second half, saying it isn't possible to reliably predict future impairments. Um, Andy Hulford joins us, the CFO of Standard Chartered. Andy, good to have your company this morning. Thanks for being with us. Look, just characterise the quarter for us and tell us what this represents in terms of your view of peak COVID. Um, Good morning and and thank you very much. So how would I characterise the quarter? So the first quarter, yeah, we saw the COVID impact primarily in our northern market, and we printed a 6% top-line growth. The second quarter, we had COVID impacting all markets, and we still actually managed a 4% growth. So overall, for the half year, we averaged a 5%. So I think in the circumstances, to have growth in the markets across the world over the period of time, actually, we thought was a resilient performance. We yep. kept the costs very well under control, so our profits before impairment charges actually went up by over 20%. But as you say, we did take further impairment charges. So in the first quarter, we took a charge of a billion dollars. In the second quarter, we took a charge of 0.6 billion. So a, a reduced number, albeit obviously in total a significant number, and you put those together, and that resulted in the profit being down year on year for the first half by 25%. But that was still a profit of $2 billion for a half year. And the other thing which was very positive was that we ended up the half year with our capital ratios above the range that we normally operate at, and actually at one of the highest levels we have seen for a very long time. So as we go into the second half of the year, Obviously, with uncertainties about how quickly 
the pandemic will settle down. We're going in with a very, very strong capital position. And we feel even though interest rates will make the going tougher over the next few months, that actually the group is in very good shape to be able to weather the storm as hopefully it starts to peter out over a period of time. Andy, one of the lines that jumped out to me was we anticipate impairments in the second half will be lower than those recorded in the first half. And I think you've just reinforced that impression of how you see the rest of the year. How much is that contingent on um, governments remaining engaged in providing financial support to the furloughed and those at this point who are in uncertain employment situations? I think for all banks, the level of impairment that they take going forwards is, is clearly going to be hugely dependent upon how quickly things settle down. And clearly government action on multiple fronts in this country furloughs, in other countries different things, is very, very important to that. It's not the only factor, but it is very important and it's their action obviously on health fronts as well. So I think the statement that we have got um, an anticipation that the impairment should be lower in the second half is based upon the assumption that the situation as we have it today doesn't get worse. But if it does start to get better, then hopefully we can comfortably operate within that sort of zone. Uh, Andy, looking at your net interest margin, it's dropped uh, pretty significantly to 1.4% from 1.66% at this time last year. Clearly, that's driven in large part by the lower interest rate environment. What can we expect for the second half? Yes, so in in March in particular, when we saw the sharp cuts in interest rates, it was very clear that the margins for us and indeed for many of our competitors would be lower going for a period of time and we guided in April when we did our first quarter results that we expected the income to be lower as a consequence of that. So I think the margin is possibly going to go a little bit further but I think we have gone the largest part of the way down. I think the other thing to remember is that the interest income is less than half of our income overall. So yes, it is a big dependency but it is not the only one. And actually in other parts of the business, particularly um, our financial markets business, the one that deals with uh, interest rates and, uh, and FX rates, it had a phenomenal first half um, income up 35% year on year. And that now actually represents about a quarter of the group's income overall. So interest rate side is under pressure. The non-interest rate parts of the business have been very, very buoyant. Um, If we can talk about business in uh, one of the key markets for you, Hong Kong, obviously it's been in focus uh, over the last several months, in particular on the back of Beijing's imposition of the national security law in the territory. How are your clients reacting? How would you describe business activity on the back of this development? Um, I I would say surprisingly resilient. So through last year, when obviously there was a lot of unrest that we all saw on the news, uh, we actually had pretty much a flat level of income in our Hong Kong business compared with the year before, when you might have expected it to have been a lot worse than that. Um, The first half of this year, also um, the income in our business in Hong Kong has been flat, albeit a little bit lower in the second quarter. So I'd say... It has obviously impacted sentiment. It has obviously impacted spending. Clearly, with the little spikes they've got at the moment on COVID, 
is not helping in terms of getting back to where they were before. But generally, if we've been speaking two weeks ago, we had many more people back in our offices. We had all our branches open. And there was a sense that things were starting to get back more to normality. Obviously, a degree of nervousness about what is happening in the broader political environment. But generally speaking, we've got a business there that has proven over multiple periods to be very resilient through the various ups and downs that happen over time. Yeah, Andy, can you share with us uh, perhaps some insight at the boardroom level as to how the company intends to negotiate this delicate political situation? I mean, the problem is, uh, you know, if you show support for the security law, as I think the bank did, then you immediately fall into the crosshairs of the UK uh, parliamentarians who've accused the bank of putting profit before principle. Um, How do you negotiate this uh, difficult political position and uh, how would the bank view conditions in Hong Kong business-wise if ultimately they suspend the legislative elections for a year? Uh, I think one has to think about the the broader context here. So in a lot of these markets, particularly Hong Kong, China, we have actually been operating for over 160 years continuously. And during that period of time, there have been all sorts of ups and downs economically, politically, um, socially, etc. Our our business, both in Hong Kong and in China, uh, are very well-established businesses. We have significant custom bases in both countries. We support the local communities in both countries. And I think what we need to do is just to continue to focus upon our customers, upon providing the support that we can do to them. Laws will come, laws will go. We need to obviously be compliant with those. But I think our focus just has to be wholly on our customers and how we support them, particularly through difficult times like those that we have at the moment. All right, Andy, thanks so much for joining us. We're going to wrap up with you now. Andy Holford, the Chief Financial Officer at Standard Chartered. Uh, Let's push on. Um, Plenty of results, as Jeff said in the opening, to get through. Let's take a look at AB InBev, the numbers just crossing the wires. Uh, First line here, the COVID pandemic continues to present unprecedented challenges. On the revenue front, they recorded a 17.7% decline in the second quarter. Uh, In terms of volumes, volumes declined by 17.1% in the second quarter, with own beer volumes down by 17% and non-beer volumes down by about 15.5%. In terms of global brands, the combined revenues of our global brands, Budweiser, Stella, and Corona declined 16.6% globally. Uh, Cost of sales decreased by 4.9% in the second quarter. And in terms of earnings on the EBITDA front, they have registered $3.4 billion, uh, representing a 34% decrease in the quarter. Uh, Also seeing a pretty substantial margin contraction EBIT margin a contraction of 825 basis points to 33.2%. And a little bit of commentary here. Um, they talk about impairments. Uh, in particular, uh, we performed an impairment review considering various scenarios. Uh, no impairment was warranted under a base case and a best case scenario, but uh, we were exposed to a risk of impairment for the South Africa and rest of Africa uh, units under the worst case scenario and concluded it was prudent to recognize 
a $2.5 billion non-cash goodwill impairment charge. Uh, and that uh, is in applying a 30% probability of that worst case scenario. Um, a few more comments for you in terms of liquidity. We've taken significant actions to maintain strong liquidity. Uh, we've also implemented several initiatives that drove a meaningful reduction in SGNA. So mentioned there the cost of sales going down. They uh, maintain the fundamental strengths of the business remain unchanged. They've got a clear commercial strategy, diverse geographic footprint. But uh, looking at these numbers, all of that may well be true, but they have seen a substantial hit. Of course, beer, a very difficult uh, item to be providing in a time when large gatherings are discouraged around the world. Of course, they, I mean, they're in wine as well. They have uh, a whole range of uh, spirits uh, and other products, um, and they've been very focused on trying to grow emerging mm. as well. And I have to say, I mean, even as, you know, there have been some challenges uh, in the distribution channels to market, obviously because of the closure of pubs and restaurants and other dining out venues. Um, I, I think that, you know, when you look at uh, how some consumers have behaved in both the UK and the United States, you have seen a pickup in beer and alcohol sales. So I think perhaps no surprise that they've had they've actually been able to temper some of the negativity around the statement this morning. And it'll just be interesting to see if we get these pockets and these second waves, to what extent that has any impact on sales. Uh, certainly. Um, well, we've got uh, some more earnings just crossing the wires. I want to bring to you Nestle has just come through. Uh, uh, H1 organic growth for Nestle, 2.8%. The outlook for 2020, 2 to 3% organic growth. Uh, looking a little in a little bit more details at the numbers, uh, within that 2.8% organic growth reach, they've got real internal growth of 2.6%. That's one of the key metrics for investors. Pricing of 0.2%. Uh, growth was supported by a mo but sustained momentum in the Americas as well as Purina Petco, people busy buying pet uh, products, and Nestle Health. Uh, a few more of the numbers for you. Underlying op underlying trading operating profit margin is expected to improve. Um, that's one of the lines they've got here. Divestitures and foreign exchange reduced sales by 12.3%. So some uh, adjustments to take into account here. And uh, I mentioned the outlook that they've given for 2020. Organic growth should be in the range of 2 to 3%. This guidance is based on our current knowledge of COVID-19 developments and assume no material deterioration versus present conditions. Sounds uh, a lot like what we just heard from standard charter, the assumption being that conditions don't deteriorate any further. Uh, oh, Jeff, do you well, I just wanted to make a quick point here. Um, you know, at Nestle, there was a bit of a steward's inquiry, I think, as there has been around a lot of the fast-moving consumer goods companies like Unilever and Reckitt Benkiza. But I think Nestle's come through with, with relatively shining colours here. And you've only got to look at the share price performance, I think, to see that the market has anticipated the improvement that you're talking about in the numbers here. OK, the run rate looks relatively calm at that sub-3% level. But it's steady and it's solid. And, um, it, you know, this is a company that's now trading on uh, 25 times, 26 times earnings here in the fast-moving consumer goods space. But, so I think that tells you an awful mm. lot about how perhaps a lot of investors have reassessed the outlook for some of these consumer staples businesses. Nice to have you in for the first hour, <laughs> by the way. Did I mention that? I'm glad Must to. have been a bit of a shock on the old alarm clock this morning. It was. I didn't realize how dark it was uh, in the 3 a.m. Oh, hour. it's dark, but <laughs> in more ways than one. When you 
work this shift, Juliana. Believe me, just talk to some of the guys in the gallery here. <laughs> No, but I'm very happy to be here. Big morning for markets, so it's great to be part of it. Uh, well, we're going to take a short break now, but the earnings bonanza continues. Coming up on the show, Airbus sees revenues stall as coronavirus headwinds continue to plague the plane maker. More after the break. And let's tell you a little bit more about what else is coming up. We've got a show full of interviews. Uh, a lot of top executives coming on the program as they report their earnings. Uh, we will catch up with uh, Credit Suisse, but we'll also talk to Magnet, Renault, Fresenius, Shell. Uh, stay tuned. It's, uh, it's going to be an exciting show. Listen to CNBC's Beyond the Valley, the podcast that explores the biggest tech news from across the globe. Join me, Arjun Karpal. And me, Tom Chitty, every week as we bring you insights into the top stories, unpack the latest trends, and find out where the industry is headed. Now available on Spotify, Apple Music, and Google Podcasts. So, did he meet your lowered expectations? Uh, did uh, Jerome Powell deliver here? Well, the U.S. markets, big sigh, I think, to be quite honest with you. The Federal Reserve kept interest rates on hold near record lows, while the central bank warned the fate of the economy will, quote, depend significantly on the course of the virus. Jerome Powell said the recent spike in cases across the U.S. had caused the economic recovery to slow. The FOMC reiterated its pledge to use, quote, the full range of tools at its disposal in a bid to boost the recovery. Powell said consumer spending would remain limited until people could feel safe again. We have seen some signs in recent weeks that the increase in virus cases and the renewed measures to control it are starting to weigh on economic activity. A full recovery is unlikely until people are confident that it's safe to re-engage in a broad range of activities. On the corporate front, Total has warned it will write down $8.1 billion in the value of its assets, citing charges at its Canadian oil sands unit and a lower outlook for global energy prices due to the pandemic. The decision, which is expected to increase the company's debt-to-equity ratio by 1.3%, comes after similar moves by rivals BP and Royal Dutch Shell. Total will release its second quarter results later this morning. Airbus has reported a $1.6 billion loss for the first half of the year, with second quarter revenues falling by 55% as the plane maker failed to deliver 145 aircraft due to the impact of COVID-19. Charlotte joins us now with more on these numbers. Charlotte, when we spoke to the Airbus CEO uh, during the spring, he warned that this was the gravest crisis that the aerospace industry had ever faced, yet these numbers seem even worse than the market was expecting. You're right. And Q2 was always going to be the toughest one. And as you say, um, there it's a grim picture, a bit like what we saw with Boeing uh, yesterday. So Q2 revenue decreased by 55% to 8.3 billion euros. That was below uh, market expectation. And Q2 EBIT uh, minus 1.2 billion euros, again, worse 
than expected. Uh, so as you said, deliveries was down 50% in the first half to 196 planes. And by the end of June, they had 145 planes that had not been delivered. Of course, that was money to a company. They build those planes, but they don't deliver them. So that was interesting here to say. Also, another interesting point here is that they reduced the production of A350 uh, planes to five from six previously. Again, similar to what we saw at Boeing yesterday. So uh, a green picture here for, for Airbus, very much like what we saw at Boeing uh, yesterday. Thank you for listening to Squawk Box Europe Express. For more market-moving news, you can head to cnbc.com. Or join us again on the show with Jeff Cutmore, Steve Sedgwick and Karen Show Weekdays on CNBC.